over the lunch table or whatever, we evaluate the Sunday, the, the, the service. Um, and again, like I say, we all have our own ideas about what makes a good Sunday. Um, everybody's, uh, I mean, we start young, uh, people have something to say. Um, back, I guess last Thanksgiving, last November, one of the Sunday school classes, you know, did drawings for what they were thankful for. And so one of the Sunday school teachers brought me the drawing that one of our kids did. It was, uh, he was thankful for me, which was kind of, kind of, kind of, kind of nice. Um, he drew a picture of me. Um, when kids draw my picture, they always over-exaggerate certain things. Um, my hair, like they draw my like, hair like a mile, just like sticking straight up a mile like this, like, you know, Flavor Flay back in the day or something. And, um, and this kid had that like hair, just real tall. Uh, and then like a nose, it was way out of proportion uh, from everything. Uh, but then he wrote, uh, thank God for, for my preacher. He preaches to us. And sometimes he is funny. <laughs> like, excuse me? Some, sometimes? You know, what is that? Um, like I say, every, everybody's something of a critic. Uh, everybody feels like they, that they have a sense of what makes a Sunday morning good. Uh, all of our ideas are different. For, for some of you, you'll get in the car today and you'll say, you know, that was a pretty good Sunday, except that that woman in front of us had so much perfume. Her perfume was so strong, it triggered a migraine. And I couldn't, I was so glad to get out of there. Her perfume was driving me nuts. Anybody ever had that, that Sunday? Or um, I don't know why they got to keep it so cold in there or hot, whichever you are. Uh, I don't know what kind of Eskimos in charge of the thermosets around there, but it's, you know, the coldest place I've ever been, almost froze. I don't, you know, have to bring a sweater. Uh, I know, I, I know. Um, it was too long. Why he's got to talk so long, I don't know. You know, I could, I could feel him trying to end the thing, like, like on an airplane that's just circling. He circled the runway like five times before he ever put that thing down. Yeah, that sermon was over. I was done way before he was done. Uh, we have those Sundays. I, 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 I get that. Um, music always, you know, music. Uh, don't know why we sing all those slow songs today, all those slow songs, those slow old songs. Somebody needs to buy Rada subscription to, you know, Pandora or Spotify premium or something where he can hear a new song. And then others, somebody should get Rod that DVD set of the Gaither Homecoming so Rod can learn an old song, you know, one, one way or the other, you know, let's, uh, let's, let's, let's work on the music. It can, it can be too loud. Uh, that, you know, drummer was beating that box so loud today, I mean, you know, whatever. Uh, that's, uh, that's, that's how we do. Um, so everybody has something to say and everybody's something of a critic. Um, and and that, I'm, uh, that's, that's just church life. I, I, I get that and I welcome that. Um, the thing is, who gets to say? You know, I mean, this particular hour that we're halfway through now, at the end of it, you, you may have some decision, some, something to say about whether or not you think it was a good hour, a, a good church day. But in the end, with so many different opinions and so many different, you know, you know body thermometers, whatever, so many different... Uh, tastes in music, so many different ideas about what a sermon should be. How in the world could we ever really decide if it was a good day or not? Who in the end has the final say? It, it reminds me of, of a lot of experiences I have in counseling married couples. I'm familiar with the old idea of a love language. You know, people have love languages. I think there's a lot of truth in that. You know, take a couple, I'll call them Gene and, and Norm, um, Jean is married to Norm. They've been together a long, long time. But Jean says that there's no love in the marriage, that, that she doesn't feel like Norm loves her, that she feels like roommates in the same house, 
that she comes home and he's on the couch and he falls asleep on the couch and she falls asleep in her chair, you know, diddling on her iPad. And, and in the end, he never talks to her and she just wishes he would talk to her and how any man can go through a whole week and not have a single thing to say. You know, it's that sort of thing. Jean always feels unloved. Norma, on the other hand, says, I don't understand why she would say that. Of course I love her. I love her. That's why I cook supper four nights a week. And he does. I cook supper four nights a week. And that's why I do the dishes and I vacuum because of her, her, her bad back and I do all the yard work because of her allergies. How can she possibly say I don't love her? It's, it's, it's that sort of thing. Uh, so honestly, it's, a, it's what I call a lover's quarrel. There's love in that marriage, but the thing is that they just constantly miss each other. You know, Jean's idea of love and loving her husband is not the same as his, his idea of loving her. So in, in all of his acts of service, she never feels love because she's not getting the communication. And y'all know how that goes. It's, it's love, but, but they don't really understand how the other person wants to be loved, what would actually satisfy them. And, and that reminds me of Isaiah 58. This is kind of a lover's quarrel here between God and his people. There is great love here make no mistake, but also great frustration. The people are frustrated because they're doing everything that they know to do for God. I mean, they're doing everything with great feeling, everything that they know that they could possibly do to make God happy, but somehow they get this sense that mm, God's not really moved by all of their uh, religious business, and so they can't figure out what the problem is, but it never crosses their minds that the problem is with them. In their minds, it's God. God must have a problem. What is God's problem? Um, very simply, God has one problem. It is the people. Uh, and that brings us to Isaiah chapter 58. Um, sometimes when you love somebody, it's important to stop and wonder, what is it that they want? What is it that would satisfy them? And this is the one question that the people of God simply never are willing to ask. What does God want? Isaiah 58, verse 1. This is about worship. Um, you, if you've never read this chapter, you don't have any idea where this goes. This is good. Isaiah chapter 58, 10 verses. Let's start with verse 1. Shout with the voice of a trumpet blast. Shout aloud. Don't be timid. Tell my people Israel of their sins. Yet they act so pious. They come to the temple every day and seem delighted to learn all about me. They act like a righteous nation that would never abandon the laws of its God. They ask me to take action on their behalf, pretending they want to be near me. We fasted before you, they say. Why aren't you impressed? We've been very hard on ourselves and you don't even notice it. I'll tell you why, the Lord responds. It's because you're fasting to please yourselves. Even while you fast, you keep oppressing your workers. What good is fasting when you keep on fighting and quarreling? This kind of fasting will never get you anywhere with me. You humble yourselves by going through the motions of penance, bowing your heads like reeds bending in the wind. You dress in burlap and cover yourselves with ashes. This is what you call fasting? Do you really think this will please the Lord? No, no. This is the kind of fasting I want. Free those who are wrongly imprisoned. Lighten the burden of those who work for you. Let the oppressed go free and remove the chains that bind people. Share your food with the hungry and give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them and do not hide from relatives who need your help. 
Then your salvation will come like the dawn. Your wounds will quickly heal. Your godliness will lead you forward and the glory of the Lord will protect you from behind. Then when you call, the Lord will answer, yes, I am here. He will quickly reply. So remove the heavy yoke of oppression. Stop pointing your finger and spreading vicious rumors. Feed the hungry. Help those in trouble. Then your light will shine out from the darkness, and the darkness around you will be as bright as noon. I, did you see that coming? Did you know where that was going to go? I mean, that Sunday morning is connected to all of that. I mean, did, did that cross your mind? That what we do here is connected to all of, all of that? So when it comes to worship, who gets to evaluate it? Who gets to say, well, it's really simple, the God we worship. The, the, the God who is the focus and center of all of this, he in the end, gives the only evaluation that matters, but here he gives his evaluation and it matters. It's really interesting. It's a, it's, it's a fascinating chapter because for the one thing, when I read about all the people are doing, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit impressed. I, I mean, it's just me. I, I, I mean, these people are devoted. You, you, you cannot say they're not devoted and committed. I mean, it says right there, verse 2, they come to the temple every day. And let that sink in. Some of you drag your behinds in here once a week and you think you've done a big deal. I mean, they do it every day. They come to the temple every day. Delighted to learn all about the Lord. I mean, they're in the word. They're in the temple. I mean, these people pray. And they do it with great devotion, great commitment that they fast. Like, like not just occasionally, they fast. This is a part of their regular routine. They, they fast. Y'all know what fasting is? I mean, fasting is going without food. Fasting is, is in the Bible. Interestingly, no one's ever commanded to fast. And yet all through scripture, people fast. God's people fast. They typically fast in a situation when they, they, they feel this sense of desperate need for God. And so they will forego ordinary patterns of eating in order simply to focus on their hunger for God. So in a moment of, of just great desire or, or needing great help from the Lord, they don't eat. And this for the people of God in Isaiah 58, this is a regular part of how they pray. They regularly pray and fast. Now, I'm just saying, I'm impressed with that. You can't help but be impressed with that. I mean, fasting is never gonna be as popular as eating. And these people fast regularly. They're starving themselves and, and, and praying. And, and you have to be impressed with that. You, I just don't know how you cannot look at this congregation and think, mm, we need some of that. I mean, if I read about this congregation in a worship or a pastor's magazine, I'd be impressed. I would want to talk to the pastor. I would want to find out how do you get people to come to church every day? Like, I want to know the secret to that. Or how do you get people in the word where they just want to be in the word and, and, and together every day in the word? And how do you stir that kind of desire in people so that they would, they would be willing to fast regularly? Like the whole congregation fasting and, and pray. I mean, and, and that's the other thing. It's this whole congregation, this, this unity. 
I mean, as I said, we're sort of divided by opinions and, and different ideas of what church should be like and what makes a good church service or a good worship service. But these people are united in this. They don't have any issues uh, related to the way they do it. I mean, they're, they're united. And, and, and it's actually pretty impressive. I'm impressed. But at the same time, even they seem to feel this sense of how hollow it, it is. I mean, notice how in verse 3, they're asking God, why aren't you impressed? Like, like, how do they know? It's like somehow they know. You know, we're doing this, we're making this hard on ourselves. We're doing all of this. God, why aren't you moved by this? Why don't you seem to be impressed? I mean, isn't that interesting? As all up in it as they are, they still have this sense of, mm, there's something off here. There's something missing here. And, and, and very truly, there, there, there's something missing. A church full of religious people, as it turns out, isn't what God wants. I mean, let that sink in. I mean, what, what is described right here, if we looked at that, we'd say, that's what revival looks like. But God says, no, that's not exactly what revival looks like at all. That's not what I'm after. That's not what I want. A church full of people every single day, that's, that's not exactly what God wants. So what does he want? from us. Have you ever just wondered? If if it's not, you know, your backside in a pew for an hour, an hour and a half a week, I mean, what is it that he wants? Because honestly, that's that's the question of your life. that, That is the question that we should be asking. If worship is for God and we're gathered here for God, then what is it that he wants? What would satisfy him? So what we get here is an evaluation of their worship, and it is an honest and and dreadful kind of evaluation. God basically says that their worship is worthless. It's empty, empty, worthless. Notice, it's just, man, verse 2 is where where God gets rolling here. so many of the words he says, he, he says are really good. It's like God says something that's almost good, but then he puts these key words in here that sort of tilted in a direction that, that begins to make you uncomfortable. Notice verse two, he starts off, my people act so pious. <clears throat> if he said, my people are so pious, that's great. But, but God in his evaluation says, they act pious. Keeps going. They come to the temple every day. I thought that was good and seem delighted to learn all about me. It's that word seem. It, it seems like they, they're delighted. They act like a righteous nation that would have never abandoned the laws of its God. If he said they are a righteous nation, that would be amazing. But what God says is they act like. They asked me to take action on their behalf pretending they want to be near me. We fasted before you, they say. Why aren't you impressed? We've been very hard on ourselves and you don't even notice it. I'll tell you why, God says. It's because you're fasting to please yourselves. Uh, Let's go. First thing I would say is worship is worthless when it becomes all about you. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's, it's not about us. We, we worship God. It's for God. It, it's, it's all for God. And when it becomes about you and me, 
It's worthless. This is what God says. You're fasting to please yourselves. And that's kind of funny because I think who would fast to please themselves? Like, like fasting is not pleasing. Like eating is pleasing. So it seems like if I want to please myself, I wouldn't be fasting. I, I, would, be, I would be bellied up at Blaze Pizza. You know, pleasing myself. But no, God says, you're fasting to please yourself. Some of you are thinking, pleasing myself by coming to church on Sunday? This is the last place I really want to be. I'm not pleasing myself. I'm pleasing my mother, maybe. Pleasing my family, maybe thought I was pleasing God. But I'm certainly not here for me. An hour, preacher that goes on and on and on. Sanctuary too cold, lady in front of me too much perfume. We got it, yeah. Um, How is this somehow pleasing ourselves? But that's the thing. We have this remarkable way of making worship about us. We make it all about us. It's funny how you may not even enjoy coming to church on Sunday, but it makes you feel better about yourself. And, And that's how it becomes about you. It's like you live like you live all week long, and then somehow you come back to church on Sunday, and a good long hour of boring preaching makes you feel like you suffered for Jesus. It makes you feel better about yourself. So now you've sort of given God what he gets, and now you can go the rest of the week and and give yourself what you want. You understand? We have this way of making it all about ourselves. I do the same thing. And when worship becomes about me, it's worthless. Y'all, oh my goodness. I uh, Okay, let me stop. A lot of y'all are rednecks, so y'all eat pinto beans, right? Um, You know, you ever had like eating pinto beans? You know how sometimes... a what do you call the skin of a bean? The skin, is it the skin? Y'all know what I'm talking about? Like pinto beans have like a skin. And you ever have one of those bean skins like lay on one of your teeth, like cover your teeth where you can't feel it, but anybody looking at you, you know, you look like, you know, something off a hee-haw because you got like one <laughs> tooth blacked out. Well, I had rice and beans at Popeye's in Franklin on Thursday for lunch, right before I preached a funeral. Y'all know where this goes. Um, so, I mean, the rice and beans at Popeye's is amazing, and you should all eat that. Um, but then I, I went to the, you know, I went to the funeral home, got there nice and early so I could talk close in everybody's face. Um, and I, I spoke to everybody, and I preached a whole funeral. I preached my heart out, preached a whole funeral, did the graveside. You know, I'm up in people's faces going, I'm so sorry for your loss, sorry for your loss. And then I get in my car, it's all over, and I look in the rearview mirror, and I have a bean skin. Like, like, <laughs> Like, not a little one. Like, it looks like I have a tooth out. And I see, I just preached a whole funeral. Like, you know, like I'm saying, I'm so sorry for your loss. And and they're looking me in the tooth thinking, dude, you know, but nobody says anything. So, So I'm in the car thinking, that whole funeral was a waste. What a waste. You know, preacher, gimpy preacher got a tooth blacked out, you know, sorry about your loss, you know, <laughs> one big. <laughs> do y'all know it's not about me? Do y'all, do y'all know that, that, that what God is doing all the time is not about me? Now, I, I'm blessed if ever, and you're blessed if ever he can use us in doing his work in the world, but it's never about us. I was there. I was not perfect. I was flawed. I was comically flawed, you know, with, with one tooth out. But, but I'm telling you at the same time that that was an act of worship before God. It was not about me. So if they walk out of that not impressed with me, that's beside the point. It doesn't even matter. 
Was there comfort from the Holy Spirit? Was there hope in the gospel? You understand, I don't matter. I, I don't matter. And you don't matter either. I mean, so as far as coming to church and, and being satisfied with everything that happens, understand, it's not about you. It's never been about you. It's not going to be about you and me. Because the moment it becomes about us, it becomes worthless. You may not like every song we sing, but we're not singing to you. I don't like every song we sing. I mean, you recognize that? It's just not about us like that. We're singing to the Lord. So when college students come in and say, I can't believe y'all are still singing it. This is amazing grace. We sang that when I was in high school. Come on, I mean, what do you mean? Like we're supposed to stop singing them like when? Like, like when you get tired? I mean, you know, it's like young people who think the songs should change every three weeks. And then older folks who think we should sing the same songs, you know, that John the Baptist sang, you know, because he was Baptist. I mean, you know. But none of this is about us. None of this is about us. Worship is worthless when it becomes about us. It's It's not. We, we fast. Aren't you impressed? We, we've been very hard on ourselves, and you don't even notice it. And the Lord says, it's because you're fasting to please yourselves. You, you, you take all of this that's supposed to be for God, and you make it something about you. And the, and the next thing, worthless worship is, is outward, not inward. It's, it's outward, not inward. Go back to verse 2, because verse 2 is what just gets... So under my under my skin, it's it's it's. Tell my people of their sins, they act so pious. Like I said, it's that word act. If he'd said they're so pious, but he says they act pious. They seem delighted to learn all about me. You see, because that's how it works. Every time, you know, the teacher would open his Bible, they open their Bibles in the congregation, and, and they always face forward, and some of them even took notes. But, but the Lord says, you know, that's, I, I'm not falling for that. It's, it's false. You only seem delighted to learn. You're not really delighted. They act like a righteous nation. They ask me to take action, pretending they want to be near me. I mean, God uses the word pretending. God says that what the people are doing is only pretend, which means God knows the truth, and the truth is their hearts aren't in it. Now, it does go on to say that, verse 5, they go through the motions of penance. I mean, this language is is so so damning for us as God's people because because this is God's evaluation of our church life, our worship life. And God recognizes that that it's not real. It's outward, but it's not inward. You you act like something that you're really not on the inside. You, You pretend that you want things that honestly in your heart you don't want. It's it's outward, not inward. See, that's the puzzle of people, and some of us fall in this category. I have gone to church my entire life. I mean, nearly every Sunday. I mean, I'd say unless I had a stomach virus, but I've been dragged to church with a stomach virus. I mean, you got to try to tell Don Harris you're not going to church. You just try. You know, good luck with that. You know, I mean, I've dragged to church sick. I mean, I've laid under the pew, you know, uh, I mean, I've been in church every Sunday of my life, and some of you have too. And, and the thing is, after all of these years, 
after all of these years of church and all of these years of, of singing these songs that you say are so dear and all of these years of sermons where you've taken notes in your Bible and underlined verses and all of these years, we don't ever change. Ever strike you as funny that nothing ever changes with us? Our hearts don't change. Our hearts never change. I had a lady one time, this was a low day in ministry, a lady called, it started out good. She said, Pastor Tim, I was wondering if we could start another, another Bible study group. I said, well, that sounds fantastic. Let's do that. And, you know, yes. You know, the answer is, I don't have to think, yes. We can. She said, I'm glad that you say that because I think we just need another Bible study group. I said, that's fantastic. What do you have in mind? She said, well, I was thinking maybe a group, you know, that would meet in the daytime. Now, uh, this is not a lady in our church, right, right, understand it. It's not like, don't be looking down your pew going, you know, it's not a lady in our church. I was thinking about a Bible study, you know, in the daytime where like those of us who don't work could come. I said, that sounds great. I would love to do that. She said, no, I don't want to lead it. But, but I was thinking maybe if you could find somebody to lead it. Because I was, what I would really like, and, I, and I've thought a lot about this, Brother Tim, what I really, really would like is a group where, you know, if you feel like coming, you could come. But if you didn't really want to come, you wouldn't have to come and nobody would think anything about that. And the more she talked, just, you know, my heart sank. And at the end, I just thought, I, I don't want another group where you just can come if you feel like it and stay home if you don't. Nobody cares if you come or not. I mean, I mean, honestly, I think we have enough groups like that. Let's just be honest. I mean, to start the group where, where people come in with hearts on fire and hungry for the word, you know, and, and a group, it's not going to be like the other groups, but a group where, you know, like I, I want to be there. I'm, I'm passionate for the word. And, and, and to have a lady who's, you know, been in church her whole life say, I'm not going to lead it. I mean, you know, it's, it's like, why? I mean, you don't think it's a little bit odd, you know, that like after all of these years, you still think you're a beginner? Like after all of these years in the word, I mean, some of us still say, you know, you know don't ask me to, you know, say anything out loud. You don't think it's a little strange that in all of these years, like you should have a PhD in Sunday school by now. I mean, seriously, a PhD. Like you got 12 Bibles in your house and you've been in Sunday school and Bible study your, your whole life. But in all of these years, you haven't learned very much. Like you don't, you barely know Noah from Moses. Let's be honest. You don't think that's a little strange because God thinks it's a little bit strange. This is exactly what he's going at here. You come at this like you're delighted to learn all about him, but God knows it's, it's, it's outward, but not inward. That's a show, but God's not falling for it. He understands that your heart never changes. In, in all of your Bible studies, and all of your groups, you've never quite developed a soft heart for the Lord yet. Never really developed a, a hunger to know him. Never real desire to be with him. I mean, y'all run in here like, like you're eager to be with me, but it's pretend. I mean, that's what the Lord says. It's, it's pretend. You don't want to be with me. It's a devastating evaluation of worship, but he's not done yet. Uh, the, the, the next part is, 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 is really shattering. Uh, worthlessness on Sunday is revealed by selfishness on Monday. 
Notice what he says. Even while you fast, you keep oppressing your workers. What good is fasting when you keep on fighting and quarreling? This kind of fasting will never get you anywhere with me. It just goes on and on and on. This is not the kind of fast that that I want. You want to know the kind of fast I want? Verse 6, free those who are wrongly in prison. Lighten the burden of those who work with you. Let the oppressed go free. Remove the chains that bind people. Share your food with the hungry. Give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them. Do not hide from relatives who need your help. I mean, it makes it pretty clear that honestly, if you want to evaluate the worship service on Sunday, you look at the people's behavior on Monday. Are you with me? In other words, like when this service is over, and I promise I'm almost done, y'all, I'm almost done. When it's all over, you may sort of have your preliminary evaluation and you can talk about how you think the Sunday went. And and we all do that. I understand that. But but I just want you to understand, it's a little early to make the, the, the conclusion. Because we don't know how this worship service goes until we see how you do. And if you go out into the rest of this week and you continue to just quarrel and fight with people, like if that's just you, like you sit in church for an hour, but then you still can't get along with anybody, like everybody in the world runs in the other direction when you walk in, I mean, there's a problem with that. And if you continue to be the same kind of person at work that you've always been, like you can sit through an hour of worship and it doesn't change anything about the way you live your life. Like, I don't mean your church life. Y'all got your church life buttoned down pretty good. I mean, we dress up, we, we shower, we shave, we make it in here. This is your church life. It looks good. I'm talking about your life life because your worship life is going to be actually revealed for what it is by your life life. Is there ever any change? And, and honestly, selfishness on Monday is the best sign that Sunday was worthless. Because honestly, if you make worship all about you, everything else is all about you also. So you're going to be the same selfish person at work and and with your family. And and when somebody in need is in your path, if you you think this is about you, then you're going to think everything's about you. And and this is exactly what the Lord is saying. Even when you fast, you make everything about yourself. It, It goes on. The integrity of your worship is revealed by the way you treat people in need. I, 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 I know this is hard. I mean, it, but God's word is clear. Verse 7 share your food with the hungry. The Hebrew words used there actually mean share your food with the hungry. I mean, you know, there's nothing unclear about that. But when is the last time you invited a person in need into your house at your table to share your food? I'm not talking about like drive by where you pitch a bag of groceries out and keep going, you you know. I I mean like share your food with the hungry. Uh, Give shelter to the homeless. Like probably a lot of us in this room have an extra bedroom in our house. Who sleeps in it? And, and, And have you ever really like thought about that? Like you have a bed that's empty like every night of the week for years. But then they're like homeless people in the community. And and you can't even imagine asking somebody to spend the night. I mean, just stop and think about it. Give clothes to those who need them. Do not hide from relatives. Oh, don't you wish? It would have been a better verse if he hadn't put in that last part. Hide from relatives who need your help. Oh, You see, the problem is, like, my relatives, I know them. 
right? Like poor people that I don't know, I can help them because I don't know them. And I can, you know, give them a happy meal and say, God bless you. Jesus loves you. Drive right away and feel really good about myself. But like relatives, these are people I know. It's like your brother-in-law asking you for money, like your brother-in-law asking you for money. And you're thinking, I gave him a $20 bill in 1987, tired of supporting him. You know, I knew he was no good when he came around my sister. You know what I mean? It's like, he's your relative. It's like, you know, phone range, look down, he's him. It's like, "Mm," you know, don't take that one. That's what it means when it says do not hide from relatives. You know, the phone rings, you answer it. This is hard because honestly, we don't think that all of this connects to Sunday morning. We, we don't think of that connection. But, but the thing is, nearly everybody that doesn't go to church, like non-believers, they understand this intuitively. I mean, like people who don't know the Lord, they fully expect that people who do know the Lord would, would be kind to the poor. Like they would fully expect that church people would be the kind of people who would share their food with the hungry and and give shelter to the homeless and clothes. I mean, they fully expect that we would be those people. But somehow when we all get in this house and we get together, we're not always those people who help. Now, uh, let me back up. I know where I am. I know know the church. I know know this congregation. I know you well. And I know that you give generously. And I know that we have a a section of our budget that is set aside just for helping the poor. And Warren Weeks, God bless him, does the the biggest part of that for our church. And on a daily basis, Warren Weeks is helping people on your behalf with with tithes and offerings that are given through this church. We do a really good job of that. And and I praise God for that. And Warren Weeks is an amazing man of compassion on behalf of this church. That's beautiful. I know of our work in Honduras with orphans. I know that our latest church planting partnership is in a very, very poor village called Casa Cancha in Peru. I know all of that. I know all of that. But I'm not sure of all that that we do together still excuses the way you and I treat people like that we see every day or or the people in our path. You say, well, Pastor Tim, I don't know if, I don't think I see a lot of poor people. I I don't believe I see anybody. And that's, that's, you know, yeah, we're really good at not seeing them, aren't we? I mean, we really, really are. Part of it is the way we build our neighborhoods. And like, if we're really, you know, really got it going, we can put a gate in the neighborhood to to keep them out. I mean, literally, you know, we, we keep people out. Um, The homelessness problem in San Francisco right now, people are really upset, not so much that there are so many homeless people, but because they have to look at them. You know, it's like, we don't mind if they're homeless people, just can you please put them somewhere else, not where I like to shop. You know, there's a panhandling issue in Bowling Green right now, but the complaint is not that there are poor people who have to panhandle, but why are they doing it there where I have to see them? You know, we don't want to see people in need. We don't like to be asked because honestly, for the most part, we don't like to help or we don't know how to help. And helping is complicated, no question. 
For the most part, we, we know how to do relief. Like if somebody has an emergency and they just need help through a rough spot. If your house burns down, we know how to bring furniture. Or if, if you lose your job, we can bring meals for a couple of nights. I mean, we're, we're good at that. Now, the Bible is clear, though. You're not helping people when you're doing for them what they can do for themselves. I mean, it says clearly in the New Testament, if a person won't work, they shouldn't eat. I mean, so there is this expectation that, that we want to get with people and get under people and, and lift them up and help them get on their feet. We don't want to just create dependence where we do for people what they can possibly do for themselves. But look at verse 10, and, and, and I'm finishing up. Verse 10 is amazing. It, New Living Translation just says, feed the hungry. But, but the Hebrew phraser is beautiful. And Isaiah writes in the Hebrew language. And what he writes is, spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry. Somehow spending yourself sounds different than just feeding the hungry. And, and, and this is what I want you to understand. It's not your pockets that you have to be willing to empty, it's yourself. You know, the thinking about poverty has changed quite a bit in the last few years, primarily by the insight, and I think it's very true, that those who are desperately poor their poverty is not really related to a lack of money. It's a lack of friends. Now think about that. It's not a lack of money. That's not the problem. The problem is a lack of friends. Now the way I relate to that is just kind of simply, um, I have a lot of people in my life. I mean, all of you. If something happened and Casey and I were homeless tonight, I'm pretty sure I could call any one of you and you would let me spend a night in your house. If not, don't tell me. I'm thinking that you would. Um, now, you know what I'm talking about? We've all got people. We've got friends in our lives. And, and, and if I had a, you know, a bad spell and needed money, I, I, know that, I know that there are people in my life who would be there for me. So my, my friends make me rich. This is my friendships. My, my social network. And so when you see a homeless person out there, you have to understand you're looking at a person who doesn't have a friend in the world. They don't have anybody. Like, like if they're under the bridge, that means that they've already used everybody up because of addiction or for whatever reason, they don't have a single friend that they could call and say, I, I need a place tonight. Now just think about that. It's, it's, it's a lack of friendship. And I think that's why the scripture says that if you really want to help that, that, that it's more about restoring people to relationship, restoring people to relationship with God first, restoring them to relationship with the community, restoring them to an authentic friendship. You, you, you need to go out and befriend the poor. You become their friend. And, and that's why I think in verse 10 it says you, you spend yourself. You spend yourself for the hungry. You involve yourself. You don't just you know, give them money and just keep going. Give them money and, and then tell them not to call you again. If you really want to help, if you really want to do the work of the Lord, you invest yourself. You become their friend. You, you let them into your life. But notice what happens because this is just absolutely so beautiful. Start First, uh, verse 8, uh, verse 7. Share your food with the hungry. Give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them. Then verse 8. Then your salvation will come like the dawn. Your wounds will quickly heal. Your godliness will lead you forward. And the glory of the Lord will protect you from behind. Verse 10, feed the hungry, help those in trouble. Then your light will shine out from the darkness and the darkness around you will be as bright as noon. Did you see that? Again, verse 8, look at it slowly. Feed the hungry, share your clothes. 
Then verse 8, then your salvation will come like the dawn and your wounds will quickly heal. Your godliness will lead you forward and the glory of the Lord will protect you from behind. Do you see that? Verse 10, feed the hungry, help those in trouble. Then your light will shine out in darkness. The darkness around you will be as bright as any. Do you understand what this says? Because very simply, what the scripture says is whenever you reach out to lift someone else up, the one who gets lifted up is you. Whenever you reach down to lift somebody else up, the one who gets lifted up always is you. Have you experienced this? You ever help somebody, just really help somebody, and when you're driving away, you tell yourself, Man, I got a lot more of that out of I got a lot more out of that than I possibly gave them. You ever had that experience? That did more for me than it did for them. And this is exactly what the scripture says. This is how it works. If you really want to be lifted up, if, if you want to have your salvation come like the dawn, your wounds quickly heal, your godliness leads you forward. If you want the glory of the Lord to protect you from behind, if you want your light to shine out from the darkness, darkness around you to be as, as noon, understand, then you have to start trying to do something for somebody other than yourself. You have to stop living for yourself. I mean, this is the life of worship that God calls us to, and it's all connected to what we're doing right here. Isn't that amazing? It's connected. So, uh, service is almost over, and uh, I guess there'll be some time for evaluation. You'll have your ideas about how the Sunday morning has gone. Um, I just want to remind you that when, when the service is over and you get in your car and you're driving home and, and, and you say that was a good Sunday, that was not a good Sunday, um, the real evaluation for this worship service, it, it will remain to be seen. See, the thing is, we don't really know how this worship service has gone until we see what you do next. been in church now, the important thing is what you do next. Pray with me. Lord, we do a pretty good job of driving to church and managing to close our eyes to the needy people along the way. Do a pretty good job, Lord, of working, some of us even as, as bosses, as managers, Lord, and never really thinking about the people who are beneath us, under our leadership, the way we treat them. God, some of us have grown very, very callous to the people in need who are in the circle of our lives or our own family members, Lord. Some of us have grown really, really hard, hard-hearted, blind. Or some of us become very proud of the way we can uh, operate at church and never, ever feel a hint of shame at the way we live and act everywhere else. 
Lord. Church people know us one way, but the people out there at work and the places where we go, Lord, they probably meet a different kind of person. God, help us. God, we really, really want what we do in here to make a difference out there. We really want the words we sing and the prayers we pray and the sermons that we share, Lord. We really want all of those things to make a difference in the world. But, Lord, they can never possibly make a difference in the world until they begin to make a difference in our own hearts. Lord, we've been singing songs for years, but we've never even begun to let the words of those songs change our hearts. We've been listening to sermons for years so long, Lord, that we should all be able to preach by now. But Lord, the sermons we've heard have never, ever begun to penetrate the hard, hard heart that is within our chests. God, help us. We want our worship to be worthy. We want our worship to be pleasing to you, oh God. We want our Sunday mornings to be worth something. So God, give us the courage. Give us the strength. Give us the wisdom. Give us the integrity to know that serving you does not end when this service ends, Lord. Serving you begins when we leave this place. The life that you've called us for, the reason that Jesus died, Lord God, we know it's for the life we live out there. So Lord, send us out with fire to love the world. Send us out, Lord, with a willingness to share our food, to share our homes, to give away our clothes, Lord, to spend ourselves for the sake of those in need, Lord. There's nothing else you're asking us to do but to love the world the way you love the world. God, forgive us for turning it into a Sunday morning worship service that's more or less designed around ourselves. Change our hearts, oh God, that we might be more like you and that the people around us would be able to see you in us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, but for the sake of the world, amen.